First of all, <laughs> no, no, not racist against you know people that matter, just against Germany. Um, hi Ben, how you doing? I'm all right. Not all right. Apart from my. Fo- Forgotten how to write, which is my main main thing, but don't seem to be able to know how to do it anymore. So it's just this podcast is uh, my only hope now. I mean, it's an issue for this podcast, isn't it? Because that's how you get followers, and that's I've why just people forgotten how to, to do it. I've, I've just forgotten how you do it. I can't pick a topic, and when I do pick a topic, uh, what I write is shit. <laughs> so don't know what's going on there, but um, yeah, it's not like writer's block. It's like just turning into a bad writer. Okay. Well, maybe we've got someone here who can help you anyway. What are we here to talk about today? Uh, we're here, well, we're here to talk about the NHS. The NHS is not the envy of the world. It's not being privatised and it is not the best system in the world. Or so the Germans would have us believe. Specifically, this German, Christian Niemitz, Head of Political Economy at the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs. Hello. Hello. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, welcome, Christian. Thanks. Thank you for coming on. So we're going to talk about the NHS privatisation scare that we get every year. Is the NHS being privatised? Why do we always think it's being privatised? And we're going to talk about uh, alternative healthcare systems and why we struggle to discuss these various options and reforms that we could have in this country. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. That's the introduction done then. Okay, so there's X days to save the NHS because the NHS is being privatised and the Tory government are champing at the bit to privatise the NHS. They're making cuts to the healthcare system in order to justify that privatisation. Is that the case, Christian? Is that not true? Uh, yeah, I think you know. You probably know the answer. Um, <laughs> the answer is is definitely no. That's not happening. That's a totally baseless conspiracy theory. Uh, unfortunately, I would be all in favor of it if it were happening. I would be one of the uh, maybe five, six, seven people in the country who would welcome it. But um, it's it's a very academic debate. It isn't happening. Um, but people have been saying this for at least. 40 years. I think I mentioned this to you, but I'm writing a paper on this right now, um, where I basically just go through old newspaper archives and um, and talk about the history of this claim, the, the history of this uh, moral panic around the NHS, the idea that there's a secret plan to privatize it and that in five years or so it will be gone. And you can show this, you can find quotes like that from mainstream newspapers from pretty much every year since at least 1980. Yes, it's, there's one from 1982. I think I've read in a previous article of yours in 1982, The Guardian warning, creeping privatization was leading to the slow disintegration of the NHS. That sounds about uh, right. But that's the thing. They could be. They could always be from any year. Uh, I've, I've got the paper here. If, if, if you want to, for example, here's one. Yep. Um, Labour leaders yesterday launched an all-out attack on the government. They accused the Conservatives of planning to dismantle the National Health Service by engineering a decisive shift towards private finance. When, what year do you think that's from? Wild guess. Ooh, that's a trick question, clearly. So, I thought you uh, just said it was 82, no? Not 82. Then that, that was a different one. <laughs> Listen, um, well, that was last year, maybe. Is that last year? The year before? It could very easily have been, but this yeah, one's actually yeah. from 1983. Right. Okay. okay. So, yeah, that was close. Here's the thing. With me, this is a subject I'm interested in, but I've... Sp- Research privately, uh, um, surprisingly little, and um, <laughs> well, I'm not that I much said, like the rest of Twitter. Yeah. I should just say I'm not that interested in it. I guess <laughs> contradicts what I just said. Um, Stated preferences revealed preferences. Well, yeah, and my 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 only principle with the healthcare is that I believe in you know universality um, is universal healthcare system free at the point of use. But beyond that, I don't really care how that's done. Like, I don't really care how it works under the hood so much. And I do think that the, 
NHS privatisation scare, having observed, when you observe politics for a while and you can see that it's a bit, it's like this never-ending, the, the, the religious worship of the NHS is like this never-ending Diana hysteria. It's it's kind of just, it doesn't feel like it doesn't happen in other countries. It's, why don't we think of it as then like the education system? We don't worship the education system like a religion. I, I, I guess it, these are important principles to cherish, being free at the point of use. But what is it about? Why is it in this country, I wonder, why we're not able to rationally discuss how to Im- improve the system or look at other systems in Europe, for example? And I know you suffer when you discuss alternatives from people immediately jumping to the American healthcare system, for example, rather than sure. other, you know, Netherlands or Switzerland or Germany or wherever. Yeah. Well, to someone not on the well, you've you've been in this country for a very very long time, but you still have a perspective of someone who's perhaps not come here with the same cultish view of the healthcare system. Why do you think? It, what do you think it is in this country that makes us think of it like that? I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Uh, if if I knew it, I would probably be better at somehow trying to find a way around it. Um, all I can say is that it's already been that way in 1980. That's what uh, the, the articles that I'm digging up show. It's, it all sounds very familiar. Not much changed then. But when exactly it started, I have no idea. It cannot have been there right from the start. Uh, I've read something about how in the early years, the NHS wasn't actually that popular that um, because uh, a lot of the the problems that existed in healthcare delivery before it was set up continued to exist and that for, for a lot of people it wasn't that big a change there was a change in um, the funding mechanism uh, but you didn't immediately see that on the ground um, but how that cult uh, around it developed uh, I really don't know but uh, there's, there, wonder, there can be anyone, no doubt does that anyone know it's very difficult. It'd be interesting trying to pinpoint when that, when it started to transition into that. Yes, it would be a question for a psychologist uh, rather than an economist or, <laughs> or even, I don't know, an anthropologist. It's more like a ritual. I think a lot of people also use this as uh, saying that the NHS is under threat. Or so. for, I think for a lot of people, that's simply a way of signaling their pro-NHS credentials. They don't literally believe that. It's not that they make any any preparations, any, any arrangements um, for that eventuality. And you, you also see... And what I found in some of the old uh, articles that you sometimes get uh, surveys where people ask, do you believe that the government is about to privatize the NHS? You get something like 70% or more crazy figures of people saying, yes, I absolutely believe that. And then the next general election comes along and the party that's uh, that's in government is re-elected. So uh, if, if people truly thought that, and, or if it was really an overriding concern, we would have different uh, election results. So it's not Always, not everyone means that literally when they say the NHS is under threat. But um, yeah, some, some a lot of campaigners really do believe it. I think there's something around it, it being like a UK-based uh, culture war. It's like um, you, there, there's nothing that can be said against the NHS, and it's like uh, it's like a left versus right thing as well. It gets, seems to get wrapped up in it. Um, it's very much like you can't say anything about the NHS, otherwise you're like a heathen. Um, but what makes it different from conventional culture war issues like like the Brexit issue, which became a culture war, didn't have to be, but it did, uh, is that there you have two sides. And this is a very one-sided culture war. Who is the other side in the NHS culture war? It's me, uh, a couple of, of nerds <laughs> on Twitter, but that's, that's pretty much it. There is no, even conservatives uh, try, go out of their way to signal their pro-NHS credentials. Um, maybe unconvincingly, but they, they certainly try. You've seen this uh, Sajid Javid tweet where somebody asked, uh, why am I getting this vaccine rather than that vaccine? Something, a fairly reasonable question. And he said, well, so what? Why don't you show some respect for our NHS? And... Yeah. Um, yeah. And then this is a conservative minister, so it's uh, it's it's not the it's, kind of left versus right culture war. It's one now, side these, completely dominates. Uh, probably mm. at some point, if I, I had to guess, would be that it became part of electioneering for for Lib. a bit like how the Tories um, will say, "Oh, they're going to nationalise this and that, and they're going to bankrupt the economy." The the Labour Party will use the NHS as a as a way of electioneering by saying it's going to privatise. They want to sell it off 
recent examples was the Health and Social Care Act. Don't pretend yes. to know much about it, but I do know it was it was led to a big a big um, uh, news stories about how it was going to lead to the privatisation of the NHS. Then it was Donald Trump and the trade deals with the uh, US that were going to lead to privatisation. Uh, and now it's post-Brexit that we're going to privatise the NHS for this and that reasons. So I can see how it's just something e- easy to exploit for Labour Party, which is understandable because you would, wouldn't you? Um, yes. yes, in the beginning, that was the case. In the in the beginning, the, the articles from, from the early 80s that I found, they are very much about Labour politicians saying that, front-bench Labour politicians. There you could say, OK, they have an obvious interest in saying that uh, because they want to win an election. But then it very quickly also became um, trade unions, um, medical societies, representatives of doctors, nurses, organizations within the NHS, and um, a lot of journalists, campaigners, people who have no obvious self-interest in making this claim, uh, but still doing it. And of course, the surveys that show that, that it is widely believed. So, um, yeah, so I guess we're saying that the, the argument hasn't changed for a long, long time, 40 years. Um, how, what That's is right. the proof that it is not being privatised? How, like, how do we know it isn't, that isn't happening? Well, we just have to look at the figures. Um, the NHS spends the vast majority of its budget on itself. Um, there is, of course, a little bit of private sector involvement, uh, like, like in any system, but um, spending on private providers in the way that most people probably understand that term, meaning companies like Bupa, um, that's less than 10% of the total budget. Now, if you then also include uh, GPs, which are technically private, um, and, uh, and and dentistry, f- uh, pharmacists, and, and things like that, which uh, are private, but most people don't seem to have a problem with that, then you get about a quarter so that of, of spending that you could, in the very, very broadest sense, classify as uh, private, or even then, not, enti- not, not entirely private, that would be private plus uh, local authorities and devolved administrations. But even then, you, you're still left with three quarters of the budget uh, being spent by the NHS on itself, in-house, by, by service, on services that the NHS uh, itself provides. And there's no increase uh, in, in the private share. It's not that um, campaigners, when, when, when somebody uh, points out the figures, these uh, these uh, privatization profits would always say yes okay that's the case now but it's um it's the private sector share may be low now but it's growing exponentially it's exploding but that's not true either it's it's uh, it's been completely flat for a couple of years and um yeah it has slightly increased at various points in the past uh, so when when the health and social care act came in um then there there were there was there was one or two years when it did increased by one or two percentage points but uh since then it stopped so it's uh it's low in absolute terms and it's not rising either Fair, fairly easy to prove that okay so there's a lot of campaign groups um that campaign against the privatization of the nhs some of them have been going for quite a while uh to name some from an article you wrote keep our public nhs uh, keep our nhs public the great mm-hmm. nhs heist we yes. We own it and every Doctor UK and there's a lot of various Twitter accounts dedicated to it as well. Mm-hmm. So so go to look at their their arguments against privatization. The great NHS heist is an interesting one. It's like an hour and a half long documentary going thoroughly going through what is happening. It's like a conspiracy for those 40 years. There's going to be an end point of a US style for profit healthcare system. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's that, quite guy, that, that guy is, is, a, is a complete conspiracy theorist. Uh, I mean, he uh, well, he's uh, he's collaborated with the Communist Party of Great Britain. The you know the, the guys who are literal Stalinists and Maoists uh, has been, I think, writing for for their blog and and done uh, events with them. And um, this I is mean, the doc, doctor, Doctor Bob Gill, yeah. Bob Gill, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even by the standards of privatization profits, uh, I mean, they're, they're all conspiracy theorists, but, but he is at uh, the wacky fringe, even by their standards. Um, he's one of those people who've been doing this for, for a long time. He was involved in a very similar documentary a couple of years earlier. It's just that the mechanism always keeps changing. As Ben already said, for a while, it was supposedly the Health and Social Care Act. They said, 
that's the Trojan horse. That's going to finish off the NHS. There was uh, Owen Jones was writing about this at the time. Uh, had a, an article in the Guardian or the Independent where he said, um, uh, "Rest in peace, NHS um, diagnosis murder, something like that. Date of death: first of April two thousand thirteen, because uh, <laughs> that was that was the day that that act took effect. Um, but then." People somehow forgot about the Health and Social Care Act. It's now not a thing really anymore. And uh, the, the the privatization profits just jumped straight to the next theory. They then said, oh, forget this stuff. It's actually the trade deal with the U.S. That's going to be the vehicle for privatization. That's the Trojan horse. They're going to sell it to Donald Trump. And then as soon as, uh, as Donald Trump was no longer there, um, they immediately went on again. And, and some even, even, there was this, poster, you may have seen this from one of the campaign groups where they had uh, Donald Trump in there looking scary and, and Corbyn retweeted this. And then they used this poster again and just replaced Trump with Boris Johnson. Nice, nice. And there was, yeah, there was Jeremy Corbyn with his dossier, wasn't there? I'd like to say, I have in my hands proof that they're selling off our NHS. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, that, that yeah. was the first time that somebody <laughs> produced an actual document. Um, if these campaigners have always been talking about uh, a secret plan to privatize the NHS, I guess most of them didn't think of this plan as an actual, uh, as, as you know, actual pieces of paper that you could hold in your hand and wave around. Uh, Corbyn was the first who took it absolutely literally and really waved these pieces of paper around, uh, which were not uh, only very marginally about the NHS. And um, but yeah, it's it's now clear that that's that's. Uh, a completely crackpot story anyway. But Corbyn immediately then also jumped on and said, ah, this new health reform, that's how they're going to privatize the NHS. And he will still say this in 10 years' time of however long he's going to be around. So some of the key arguments against uh, privatization, whether it's happening or not, um, I guess it usually comes from people with a very cynical view of private companies and also a certain view of what privatization means mm -hmm. so now you know i've said to you that i believe in the principle of free at the point of use that's that's a principle that i guess people uh critics of uh, privatization don't doesn't they simply don't believe it will be kept up uh, the nhs is open to pit all patients and they think that private com private companies will want to restrict access in, in order to make more profit and mm -hmm. they also think that they will underinvest to make more profit. So when, if that case is put to you, what was your response to that? Well, the trouble here is that, uh, well, yeah, as, as you said, they, they talk about how they imagine private systems might be like, starting from their assumptions about how private companies behave, uh, how, how um, market outcomes come about. Um, that's not the way you, you should look at this. We, we should start by looking at actual privatized systems and, uh, and, and, and then ask if you have these concerns, just ask, does this happen in that system? To which the answer is clearly no. There are privatized systems. There is the system in the Netherlands. It's, compl it's a completely private healthcare system. Everyone's privately insured. All healthcare providers are, are private. Um, and uh, it it has nothing like the uh, the outcomes that uh, that the hysterics talk about. Similarly, Switzerland um, also a largely private system uh, with 100% of the population having private uh, health insurance. And then perhaps more um, more relevant, there's lots of systems that are part private. Uh, where you have healthcare delivery, that is uh, where you have a split, let's say 50-50 or one-third private, two-thirds public, something like that. Um, and, and that's actually the norm. Most systems in developed countries would be like that, that you have even in France, uh, around half of the hospital sector is is private um, or slightly less if you just for, for size. The private hospitals tend to be a bit smaller, but... Um, but it is either way; it's a sizable share uh, of of the of the system that's private and uh, the delivery. And there is absolutely no evidence that this in any way restricts access for for poorer people. And there's also no no reason why that should happen. What what would those those companies gain by that? They are interested in um, in their uh, their, their total revenue. 
And um, if that comes from the government, then uh, they don't want to keep it that way. Why would they somehow want to um, to to restrict access? If uh, if anything, you could say that in such a system, uh, those private companies would lobby the government to uh, for having a more generous system and have higher spending overall, because that is the way that they could expand their market rather than by restricting anything. Check an argument from the We Own It uh, website against privatization. Um, and it's about democratic accountability. So their view is that um, you're making a democratic choice by electing government and it's a public service. Uh, private companies do not have democratic accountability. Is that the case? What was your What was your counter argument to that? Well, yeah, the, the democratic uh, accountability is a is a bogus argument um, because, uh, first of all, they they would have a little bit of a point if we had the kind of discussions around general elections where one party says this is our philosophy of how we want to run the healthcare. The, the, the health service and a different party saying we have a completely different philosophy of how to run it and then you made your choice between that. We don't get that anyway. It's, it looks not, nothing like that. Uh, what you get is one party saying we totally love the NHS and then the other party saying uh, we also totally love the NHS. It's not a we choose between competing visions of how healthcare should operate. Uh, okay, there you could say you could at least maybe imagine such a system but um, even then even if that, if such a system existed, and I, I, I don't think it does, it would still be the case that uh, if you're not happy with your healthcare delivery, uh, the way that you could improve things maybe through democratic accountability would be you would have to convince 50% of the electorate to uh, of, of your ideas and then vote in a particular way accordingly. Uh, I prefer a market system where I just have individual choice. It's it's like um, we, uh, as we've established before the recording, we don't agree on uh, beer very much or, or sausages. We'll return to this later, but I think... Yes, yes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preempting anything. I'm, I'm just saying, imagine we, we, had a, we had a national... I think imagine, we do agree on beer, but I just sometimes have much lower standards than you. Anyway, that's bad enough. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm okay with that. You can, you can have your low standards. Uh, I'm, I'm going to call you out on the podcast, obviously, but I'm not going to hate you for it. Whereas if we had a national beer service and if your wrong preferences uh, affected <laughs> politics, then uh, that would mean that I would have to drink the rubbish beer that you vote for as well. You see? And, I would and, vote uh, for the good beer. I get your point. I get your point. We'll talk yeah, about ma- Maybe you <laughs> would. <laughs> but, but let's say people who listen to Brendan O'Neill's Spiked Online podcast, they would definitely vote for the wrong beer. <laughs> and uh, in, a, in a politicized system, they would be able to force those preferences on, on everyone. And that's the problem with democratic accountability, even in an idealized scenario where... Uh, you really can say, okay, what we have is what the majority of voters want. Okay, what about the 50% minus one who don't want that? Why not have a system where people with different preferences can make different choices? As I said before, I haven't. I don't have very, very strong opinions on the subject. Um, so it, I, I neither looking to attack or defend your point of view. I've said my principles fairly basic. What I do find about people who uh, worry about the NHS and worry about how it might be reformed or changed is it's it's often it's quite woolly. Like that's. Stephen Hawking, there's a big thing a bit made about Stephen Hawking who made comments before, not long before he died about how uh, the NHS is the fairest way to deliver healthcare. Uh, but what does that mean? What does that actually mean? It, does, is he, therefore, is, just, is he there just defending the same principle I agree with, that, that it's free at the point of use, it's universal? It doesn't really address anything else more substantial than that. 
No, why, that's, why, that's... why is it that there's just this belief that that I think that's what most people believe in this country as well, and that they just feel that anything a reform or any form of privatization is just going against that principle. That oh, that seems to me that what most people think is that any idea a talk of reform or privatization is an attack on that principle. If you, well, it's probably because we have bad experience of it, don't we? And, and and these kinds of stories do do make headlines about you know outsourced services going tits up and yep. and causing problems. I mean, I think that's that's it, and they get picked up on because we you know we've have had leftist governments in the past, and I think that sentiment is still there with people. Um, I think people hear big business and hear privatization, they think evil. They think they're only interested in the bottom line and their service is going to be worse as a result because they don't care about people, they care about money. Yeah, I think that is a good... That, that, yeah, that's right. That is what yeah, people think. But, but even that doesn't fully explain it because surely they also believe that the owners of Mark and Spencer uh, are not driven by an altruistic desire to uh, supply people with with uh, groceries uh they're interested in the bottom line it's just that if you care about your bottom line you have to convince people to choose you rather than someone someone else so it's yeah in but in in healthcare uh and and some other sectors we uh, overrate uh, perceived intentions we we do believe that if it is uh that the profit motive uh, would somehow corrupt it and the way it's currently organized is the moral way so it's not so much about uh believing that outcomes would be worse it's more that uh, it's seen as somehow defiling the nhs if you had an organization that uh, delivered healthcare for for money uh, but it's just a, a strange argument because of course in the current system people also deliver healthcare for money it's uh, just de uh, de delivered and, and paid in a different way but doctors are not volunteers v nurses are not volunteers so in any system that goes beyond uh, maybe a few churches running uh, healthcare facilities for charitable purposes, it's going to be a highly formalized profession and a career path. And people, of course, do this in part for money. Interesting. Uh, yeah, mostly for money. Yeah, mostly, yeah. yeah. mostly for money. Yeah. So just quickly then, well, let's, uh, we've touched upon this, obviously, but talking about the alternatives... Uh, and also, when I was looking up quotes earlier, I was quite um, amused by some of the t storms that you've kicked up by discussing this a bit. <laughs> Christian Nemitz sparked a Twitter storm earlier this year when he declared the UK has no reason to be grateful for its National Health Service. <laughs> no reason to be grateful. Now that's a that is that is an unbelievably <laughs> you're just asking for it by saying for its national health service describing its performance during the COVID nineteen pandemic as quote nothing special. So yep. that caused a bit Stop of a it. that caused a bit of a <laughs> that caused a bit of a Twitter storm apparently. Uh, well, you've had very, a few very easily done. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I've never done it. I'm looking forward to my first one, but um, uh, <laughs> I can advise you on that. <laughs> So that that was a fairly recent one, wasn't it? It was this was wasn't that in the last uh, year or beginning so? beginning of this year, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I mean it's funny because you've suggested alternatives many, many times, but that was just the latest storm, was it? So yeah. what are the alternatives? Because well, we're not gonna get too deep into this, we don't have all night, but like Obviously, the main one people immediately go to, especially on social media, is, is the United States. Oh, do you want to have this bill for this? <laughs> so it's quite quite hard to discuss alternatives. And I honestly don't know. I don't know that much about the uh, the alternatives. Um, according to the article, you believe that we should be able to choose between competing health insurers uh, and that the insurance should be compulsory. Yes. Uh, and the government should cover the costs uh, for the poorest people in the in the country, so that on, written on paper sounds reasonable ish to me, but it's one of the most controversial things you can say in in political discussion in this country. Um, so what is what 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 would what would you suggest? The different various. I know you've written a lot of papers on this, so it's well worn territory for you. But what are the alternatives that this that the uh, British government should be looking at? 
Yes, I wrote a book about this five years ago uh, called Universal Healthcare Without the NHS, where in the end I suggested um, that the best type of system is probably the what's called a social insurance system, which means um, it can be insurance can be through private companies; they they can can be private. Uh, but what, what social insurance means, as opposed to conventional private insurance, is that the premiums that you pay in a system like that do not depend on your individual risk. So it's not like um, if you have additional private healthcare in Britain at the moment, um, as some people have through the workplace, that would be, or, or individually, uh, there you would pay risk-rated premiums, meaning that uh, if, if you're in good health, uh, your, your premiums are going to be low, whereas if you have chronic conditions or something, then they're going to be very high. That's how conventional insurance markets work. Now, in, in social insurance systems, what's, what's special about them is that insurers are not able to discriminate by health status. They have to offer the same contracts, uh, the same options to everyone, whatever their health status. And um, there is a financial mechanism uh, in the background which makes sure that um, that for insurers, there is also no economic reason to discriminate against bad risks because they get a compensation if they take on the bad risks, the, the high-risk patients. And that compensation is uh, is paid for ultimately by insurers that have more of the good risks. So uh, there is no, what, what that means in, in, in simple terms is, is, uh, is just that there's no incentive for you to cherry pick, to try to pick the healthiest patients because uh, that, that doesn't pay. There's, uh, if, if you have lots of healthy patients, you have to pay money into this compensation scheme. And if you have lots of sick patients, you will get money out of it. So after that, after that's taken into account, you are equally well off whether you have the sick patients or the healthy patients makes no difference to you. Uh, no incentive to discriminate. Uh, so you get that universality that that uh, that Ben you were talking about. That's um, uh, that's equally the case in these systems. Um, it's just as much as here. It's it, it is still the case that uh, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, healthy or sick. That would all be taken care of, but. Other than that, you still preserve the um, well, the, the good sides of market systems: the, the freedom of choice, the ability to shop around, and uh, have uh, you as the customer in charge. And companies have to try to to lure you and, and woo you, and try to keep you on their on their book because otherwise you can go away. Whether that's from the perspective of a of the health insurer or healthcare providers, um, if they do it in the right way. If you're happy, you stay with them, and that's the way they make money. But what you get is a discovery process. You can have different um, different organizational models. For example, um, Switzerland's particularly good example for that. They have uh, there you can have the kind of healthcare plan where you can freely choose your healthcare provider individually, but they also have the more integrated solutions where you have to go to uh, an integrated health center where uh, you have less freedom of choice. It's more than they make those choices for you. It's more coordinated, integrated. Uh, if that's what you want, if you're not that interested in individual choice, you can go for that option and uh, you can then get a lower premium and you just get different ways of delivering healthcare. You can have a highly individualized form where, where you can make uh, lots of choices. You can also have more coordinated models where there is less choice for you if you voluntarily opt into that that type of contract and uh, where it would be more expert driven doctors making the choices for you and you can have competition but between all these different ways of uh, delivering and organizing healthcare yeah i mean it sounds great sounds great doesn't it <laughs> if, if only it were I mean, that I'm easy sure. all the time yeah exactly i mean i'm sure it's not a perfect system but um but yeah i mean so no, so some some of the problems are the same as here. Uh, yeah, the demographic problems. That's something that you uh, don't get around. How so? How so? When you talk, even when you talk about an insurance based system, people will start talking to you about the American healthcare system. How what what are the key differences for the layman? Not me, but for the layman um, <laughs> between this the system that you're proposing there and the American system. What are the key differences? 
Okay. Well, um, I've mentioned one aspect, which is that uh, in, in social insurance systems, there's no premium discrimination, uh, which uh, I think there is in, in the US system. Uh, it could be that yeah. that's, that's changed a bit now, but certainly uh, historically, that's that's been the case that uh, that premiums would very much depend on your personal medical history and uh, on factors that insurers can use to predict your likely healthcare cost. And uh, that's not the case in, in the social insurance systems. And um, other than that, one key difference, well, I don't know exactly where, where it comes from, but which is certainly there, is just that, that unit costs are a lot lower. So um, going to a doctor in Switzerland or the Netherlands would, uh, irrespective of, of who pays for it, just the, the total sum involved would be nothing like what it is in the US. Mm -hmm. That's why people always post these bills uh, from, from the US because it's always shockingly high figures. And um, that's why I would, in, in that context, in the context of that system, I would say if your total costs are that high, then... Uh, Whichever way you pay for it, uh, you, you're not going to decrease the total costs. That is, I'd say, their biggest problem, that they have these colossal costs. They spend 18% of GDP on healthcare. That's by, by a massive different, uh, by a massive margin, the highest level in the world. And that is just what sets them apart. That, um, Switzerland is a richer country than the US. So you would expect, uh, in healthcare spending to be, if anything, higher there. It isn't. It's more like, 12% or so, and, and that's, by global standards, a very high uh, proportion, but okay, it's a very rich country, so rich countries, uh, rich societies do spend more on healthcare, but at the US, even taking their their wealth level, uh, GDP per capita into account, it's still, it's colossally high, it's far higher than, than you would predict from their economic figures, and um Whatever is causing that, I'd say that's some th something which has to be outside of how the financing of the of uh, the system operates. Uh, staff costs are colossally high. Uh, costs for all sorts of medical devices are, are colossally high. And uh, even if they now introduce their single payer system, as some of the campaigners there want, uh, Medicare for all, uh, the Bernie Sanders type uh, arrangements. Even if they had that, if the doctor's visit is still that expensive if the the drugs uh, the the medical devices if if the cost of that stays the same then uh, you you're just spreading that problem around it would yeah. be if you went to a restaurant and had and you ended up Let's say if the three of us went to a hospital and the bill came to uh, 5,000 pounds, okay, maybe we can work out some very clever way of splitting it between us. But either way, 5,000 pounds would be a very large sum of, of money. And, uh, and, and that would be our problem and not specifically how we want to arrange the financing of it. I mean, you'd assume it was a nice meal, lots of drinks, <laughs> probably have a fun time. Liquid gold. Yes. Um, should we? Should we? Should we pause there? Yes. Let's talk about the actually the two subjects I want to talk about might be interpreted as a bit racist because they're very, very stereotyped. Okay. <laughs> so Go for it. First of all <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> Not racist against you know people that matter, just against Germany. Just okay. um, so beer, beer. I want to talk about beer because we've had a beer incident already. I wasn't planning on drinking today, so I'm just going to get my excuses in now. I wasn't planning on drinking for this session. Then I decided last minute, jump into the supermarket, get something to drink. Bought cans of Stella. Didn't realize, didn't think about the guest I had on, and uh, embarrassed myself with the commoners. Four pack of Stella in cans. Um, so let's talk. Yeah, strongly, dis strongly disapprove. That's the <laughs> <laughs> a Brendan O'Neill beer. 
Yeah, yes, yeah, well, I do like to get down with the pearls now and then. Um, so, let's talk about beer then. Because I like beer. <laughs> <laughs> what should I be drinking? Is what I need to ask you. What should I be drinking? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive beer snob. Um, but that also means that I usually, uh, well, perhaps paradoxically, you would you would think that uh, if someone fancies themselves a, a connoisseur of something, you'd uh, expect them to know lots of names. But uh, since the whole the, the whole thing about the craft beer scene is that uh, you have a very quick turnover, um, I usually don't remember the names for very long. I, I remember styles. I am uh, when I see them again. Um, I think I can often describe them quite accurately, but the names don't really stick. But um, well, well, one of the last, uh, one of my my favorite ones is Oakham Ales. So maybe go for that. That's one of the the medium sized ones. I'd say it's not uh, one of those very tiny breweries. It must must be uh, must be a sizable market share now, measurable because I've seen it in several places. But uh, style wise, very ailey, crafty, hoppy. Brilliant stuff. Nice, nice. I've got a friend um, who lives in Bermondsey in London. They've got, you know, the, the archways there with all the craft breweries in the, under the railway. Yeah, I wanted um, to go and never, never quite made it. Yeah, we go there. It's good. It's good. It's good. I mean, I mean, they have the big ones like Cloudwater, the biggest, you know, the biggest ones like Cloudwater and things. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I, I also enjoy pretentious beer, um, <laughs> and it's often a bit a, a, a bone of contention between Ben and I as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, beer has to be sneery and pretentious. Yeah, of course. Yeah, anything you put in your mouth should be. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why I guess some some of the listeners will will not be familiar with this reference. The reason why I mentioned Brendan O'Neill twice is that he wrote this absolutely atrocious article a couple of years ago where he was whining about uh, people who drink beer other than Stella because it's a way of sneering at ordinary people. Because for Brendan O'Neill, everything is always about well, sneering. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why. I'm, that's why I'm not a. I'd very much like to differentiate. But here's the thing about me: like I love to go into a place that has all the craft beer and beers from all over the world and I agree with Matt mainly on beer tastes if he could give me a great beer and say this is a great beer and I would agree with him and really I should drink what he drinks I should drink the top class beers but where it would differ is that I will lower my standards when necessary or quite often yeah, uh, when lazy well I mean early on in the, in the last lockdown in the, in the, when they initially announced the first lockdown in uh, last year I sort of went a bit mad for a while and there was even a period where I was drinking special brew, for example. So what that says about me is that basically I'm around the same level as the crazy guy on the street on the on a bench uh, drinking out of a paper bag. But luckily I'm middle class, so I do that in the safety of my own home. <laughs> but that's about I, that's about the, <laughs> where I am, where I was in life about April 2020. Uh, yeah. So I will. Yeah, I might grab a quick, quick uh, few cans of some very low-level beer. Right. But, okay. But my tastes really. I'm with you guys. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm one of you. <laughs> now I, I have to add here that uh, being a beer snob, I've, I've had this discussion with Chris Snowden, my colleague, who is uh, who also has um, quite gammony tastes in beer, <laughs> um, and uh, well, he goes for the for the old school uh, ales like Black Sheep and Doomba. And um, mm. or, oh, I don't mind it. No, I said to him, being a beer snob doesn't mean that you can't appreciate an average beer. Mm. Um, if if I'm somewhere where San Miguel is the only thing they have, then I'll go for San Miguel and I'll enjoy that too. It's it's a, it's an okay drinkable beer. It's just that when there's also something a bit more and more exotic, um, some unusual IPA or an unusual porter. Uh, then I will obviously obviously go for that. If I've tried yes. everything else they have and didn't like any of it, then I'll then I'd settle for San Miguel. But yeah, I'll just yes. go for everything else first. Yeah, well, first of all, when I'm going to a pub that's got a good selection of beers, then I will. I won't then go. Oh, lovely! Uh, I'll have a kind of Carling, please. Uh, but I never <laughs> never drink Carling or Carlsberg. We have, I do think we have a bit of a bad taste. We have a bad taste of beers in England. In general, because those are the most hey, popular. No, we no. Fo- this is not true. Fo- and this Foster's true. Carling and Foster's Carling and and uh, yeah, but you always Carling. have those. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you, you get both extremes. You get the 
I mean, I moved here 2007 before the craft beer revolution really took off. And you moved here in 2007? Yes. Oh, right. Yes. Should have researched a bit more. I didn't. I thought you moved here way before. Well, well, I, I, I don't know if that's if that's on the internet. Uh, I doubt this. Yeah. You'll find everything uh. in, in chronological order. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's true. Back then, um, you would often have in in a lot of pubs that be Guinness, Stella, Foster's, Carlsberg, and that would be that. And if they, if they had black sheep, that would already be quite good. Um, this is this is London you're talking about, by yes, the way. Yes. Not no not not. No, that's that's not some, that's not representative. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh well, and and Cronenberg. Um but uh, which that one is okay. But uh, it, it at the time it felt a bit like a like a step down beer wise. But then the 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 craft beer revolution did take off, and um, since then. Britain has massively improved. It's uh, it's Britain has been one of the leaders in in that beer revolution. I, mean, I think it started in the states. Uh, there's there's probably parts of the states that are a bit ahead. But if you're a beer enthusiast, then nowadays Britain is one of the best places in the world uh, because in in much of the world you'd have, or let's say much of the continent, uh, it would often be that a, a pub has beers from one brewery. So you, you can then pick several beers off that brewery. Uh, it can be the Pilsner, the, the wheat beer and, and whatnot. But it's not uh, that you would expect 10 different breweries to be represented. And that is often the case here. I feel like we're leaping, leaping back to the NHS privatized <laughs> argument again. Good on wheat, into the wheat beer is good. And having I find access to one brewery. Wheat beer is a good, uh, <laughs> I find wheat beer is a good breakfast drink. You know, you have it with your, uh, with your fry up on a, on a special occasion. That is not just any day. If you go on a holiday, for example, it's a nice lemonade type. It's almost like a soft drink. Uh, I'm not uh, a fan of wheat beer. So. Ugh. Grown out of that, uh, grown that was <laughs> grown out of here. No, oh I mean, gosh. I mean, in the sense that that was the first beer that 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 I liked. It's a, when it's I a good was a way. Baby. Of, oh, when, that's, when you're di- that's different. Isn't it? That's, that's, that's the when difference. I was a child. That's, no, that, why that's I used different, to have. because yeah, that's the first beer. I can imagine why that would be the first beer you tried, but here that's a novelty. So here we're like, ooh, exotic Dutch or German white wheat beer. How interesting! But it's different for you. Where it, yeah, I guess it's it the would, most palatable, almost, easy to drink be thing. The default beer, yeah, because it's in e- some regions it, at least. it's easy to drink. It's like citrusy. I can imagine why that would be an easy first first beer to have. Yeah, it's interesting. Four, fourteen years old, and the pilsner <laughs> would initially uh, put you off a bit because it's quite bitter. That's funny. That's what it does. Just funny to me though, because people here were like, "Oh, I'm having this interesting German." I remember going to them um, when I first started going to Amsterdam, and then, then that's the first time I ever tried. Uh, wee beer and um, yeah it would have been like oh look at me trying this interesting <laughs> Dutch novelty and for you it's your your drink you drank it with the first things you drank yeah I can see why though because it is it is quite uh, it's Sweet. easy to drink yeah interesting <laughs> good okay so my most recent um, beer buying experience was arrived at my door today and I'd kind of half forgotten that I'd done it. But obviously the other night when I was quite drunk, I saw an offer on uh, BrewDog. Um, something, that came, you know, something came up on social media advertising BrewDog, non-alcoholic beer to me. And I've got a friend who's, who has successfully converted to being not drinking any alcohol after being a heavy drinker. And he drinks, when we're out, he drinks non-alcoholic beer. So I saw this and it was discounted. I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll buy that, I'll buy that. Maybe if it arrives, I'll magically deal with my drinking problem <laughs> and it'll be great. Everything will be fine. And it arrived today, it's 48 cans. And it's just, it was very heavy and, and they're not very nice. <laughs> and, but, but there are there are some okay non-alcoholic beers. That's, I mean, it was uh, fine. With, it's the first the first few sips was it was like, oh, what the hell is this? And then when you get into it, it's like, oh, it's, it's not so much a comment as a cry for help. This, to be honest, Matt. Sausages. Germany is renowned for its world class sausages, much better than uh, this bog standard British sausage with our low standards and disgusting weird looking pill things that we have with our breakfasts that's correct <laughs> <laughs> well so the germans would have us believe now uh 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say, I'm gonna make a comment here. We've had a long, long ongoing dispute about the quality of British sausages on Twitter. So I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna concede some ground here, but it's not the ground you think. No, don't don't start that way. It's not that it's not what you think. It's not what you think. So you make a lot of comments on Twitter. There's the, the rate my plate thing about people rating in, uh, full Englishes on uh, on uh, on Twitter. Many of which are shockingly like I don't understand why you'd even take a photo of them. But anyway, we have a long ongoing uh, discussion or argument conflict about British sausages and the quality of British sausages in general. So there does seem to be a thing now, I've got to admit, the, the bog-standard British sausage, the English sausage that you have with, uh, I don't know, breakfast you might get in the holiday inn or something, is these pale brown-looking things that are just a bit sad-looking, not really very flavoursome, quite cheap. And that seems to be the, the, the bog-standard English sausage. And you will say that the bog-standard sausage of, in, in this country is... It's yes, not the carling of the sausage. Yes, well. it, it doesn't compare with the carling of the sausage well in Germany. But what mm. I say is that actually, if you can go to you can go to any supermarket in this country and buy decent quality sausages. So actually, I think the problem is yes, is not the problem, not the the sausages available in this country, but the people, the stupid people <laughs> who, who who just consume these terrible looking sausages. I mean, people, you you comment, they give you all these opportunities to say, "Ugh, those sausages look disgusting," because people go on rate my plate and go rate my. All English breakfast. I'd be embarrassed to put some of the sausages they, that these people display mm-hmm. in their photos because it's always these. They look a bit like those Richmond, I and mean, the Richmond is actually an Irish sausage, but those just sad looking, made look you know made out of scraped anus and you know mm, people's kind of noses, and, and just just don't look like something you'd want to eat. But the, there's so the, there's so much variety out there of the English British sausages. Christian will say, oh, well, you know, that that's not the standard ones. You have to go out of your way. You don't have to go out of your way. They're all over our supermarket shelves. Cumberland sausages. Yeah, and they're in... Yeah, they're, not, just, n- not just in the butchers, okay. but in the supermarkets. It's it's the people in this country are wrong. Uh, and they're <laughs> choosing the wrong fucking sausages and need to be need to be guided, possibly by, by a German, possibly by <laughs> English people of better tastes. <laughs> What kind of retort are you expecting from Christian? I don't know, really. I've like just said just, like, it's just a big a statement, which is... <laughs> that's, that's why I said don't start with the concession. No, if, if, you're, if you're framing it in, uh, in snobbish, elitist terms, then obviously I'm, I can't uh, disagree with that. Um, of course, Of course the people are wrong. Uh, that's, that's, that's the whole problem. That's the big tragedy of the world, that the people are wrong about most things. Um, but yeah, there, there are, of course... Uh, do you can find excellent sausages here i've I've never disputed that but they are very much at the the top of the quality distribution and i just want to be able to go to some place pick a random one and i want that to be okay i want it to be like like spanish wine where um i've had i think in my entire life one bad spanish wine uh it's just a very safe type you can, you can go to any place in spain or, or the supermarket here that has spanish wines pick one you don't even have to read the label very much just pick one if it's spanish it's going to be okay whereas with british sausages you have to be very selective you have to know what you're what you're going for and uh, when i started slagging off british sausages that was not on the basis of rate my plate which is of course a bit of a special account where uh, i think the, the whole brand is that they uh, photograph food that is either very unphotogenic or uh, just very mundane. And, and the joke is that they take a photo of it as if for an Instagram account when, when it is clearly uh, yeah. something that you shouldn't take a photo of. Uh, but you're saying no, I missed the point of I, that I, account, I that, is that what you're saying? I totally right? missed the point of you that just account. Missed, just didn't get the joke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I started uh, with, with, the, with, with the anti-sausage crusade, actually on the basis of... Um, a couple of English breakfasts that I had in either bed and breakfasts or cafes that have them. So those would not be bottom shelf sausages. They would not go for the absolute worst. It's usually when the rest of what goes on the plate is absolutely fine. When the black pudding would be fine, the bacon would be fine. It's the sausage that ruins it. And uh, I would I would imagine that they would pick something about average, that they would not say, okay, I want fantastic bacon, fantastic 
uh, black pudding, everything great. And then I ruin it by putting the worst <laughs> sausage in there. It's, it's, it's not a deliberate choice. It's that they just go for the standard and the standard is rubbish. I mean, maybe they're doing it in that order, and they've just like ran out of like money by the time. They <laughs> yeah, too many, too many seem to do it in that order. Bacon, and then, yeah, there's eggs. <laughs> yeah, by the time they get to West, they're just like, oh shit, I've got no money left. Just. <laughs> and they do have to hold up the good old German sausages, where of course some of the the currywurst in Berlin. Okay, yeah, yeah I wouldn't write a poem mm. about those, but um, th those are. For a quick bite, for a snack, they're absolutely fine. And I guess that in yeah. uh, uh, in Germany, unlike in England, in uh, a lot of major cities, they don't have Christmas festivals where they serve you sausages and we all go, oh, look, a German sausage, how fantastic. Like, we don't have sausages here. So... <laughs> I guess yeah, I, I guess this might, I, mean, I, I might actually have to say this is, might be the end of the sausage world because no, I just think they're different types of sausages, oh. aren't they? Like the bratwurst is not like a sausage; it's it's like they're denser. It's not the only German they sausage, is it? That you resist. Yeah, but it's a type of sausage, isn't it? And that's like the famous sausage, or you can have the curry vest. They're, they're just not. I don't think they're the same. Two sausages. That's all you've got, it, Christian. That's, that's <laughs> it. Um, that's it. Deutsch first. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah, I'm like Foster's and Carling. <laughs> That's all there is. Um, there is, yeah. It's it's also it's a regional thing, uh, like like in like with beers. Uh, Bavaria is possibly um, a great place. Berlin, very much not, but because. Uh, Berlin in, in culinary ways is is um, is just a bit rubbish. I mean, all their regional uh, breweries are also the absolute worst, and uh, that's uh, they don't have much of a food culture. They see uh, eating as uh, a biological necessity rather than something to be enjoyed. So maybe that's not yeah, where you should get to something to absorb all the drugs the yeah. drugs they're having in the nightclubs, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then that, oh, the, then the taste buds would also be a bit numb. I think um, I think we should talk about like the the thing about so so you do you have like a persona on Twitter, don't you, Christian? Like you are quite contentious on Twitter. Yeah, um, it's, it's not say. that hard. And yeah, we, we've mentioned a couple of times around skirted around the tw Twitter storm thing. Yeah. and mm -hmm. you obviously enjoy that about Twitter. But yeah. do you not? <laughs> Just, I, I would find that. Would you that, consider that, yourself a probably, troll? Yeah. Would you consider yourself a troll? Um, I wouldn't object to it if somebody called me a troll. Uh, but I'd say there's, uh, it, it's not a label I would choose for myself because uh, a, a troll to me sounds like some, somebody who just uh, doesn't really have a, a view as such, but just tries to be obnoxious. For me, it's not like that. It's not that uh, I say things that I don't believe just to be. Um, confrontational. It's just that sometimes, if I could say something in in a more uh, anodyne way and in a way that I know will wind up the right people, I will obviously go for that one. Uh, well, that's what I was going to touch on because um, I guess for, for me, I'm a big fan of the Twitter account because I agree with you on a lot of things and they're the same people you ridicule. But you do go looking for it, don't you? You do go looking for it. It's not just how you reply. You go you go looking to on the wind up. Which I'm in favor, which you know I'm all in favor of other people on the yeah. It's it's part of a it's it's, it's all part of a plan. I, th I think the whole reason why uh, classical liberalism, um, the the market economy, why why the ideas that I believe in, why why we're on the losing side, is that it's just very fashionable to be a socialist, to be hyper woke. Uh, all the stuff that I argue against. These aren't convincing opinions, not that I have great arguments on their side. It's just very fashionable. And, uh, and, and sometimes making fun of things is a way to poke a bit of a hole in, in that. Uh, make these opinions, which people adopt for status reasons, um, try to make that a bit less high status by poking These... some well-deserved fun at it. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. Um, the, the, I suppose some people would think, maybe I think, that, um, yeah, I think. <laughs> the, the, the way that kind of Twitter works is the more that you kind of um, attack people like that, 
Let's call them morons. Let's call them idiotic, idiotic morons, annoying it twerps. Um, the more that you attack people like that, the more it draws them into people's feeds <laughs> and actually gives them more more fuel. Yeah, you're just fueling the fire. The tank, you know, the weird communist people and all, you know, the loonies. Yeah. The, 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 and they the, are. The some of the people interact you interact with, people with like are just incredibly. Yeah. I do. I mean, I think it's um, funny and also shocking to see what some people think out there. But yeah, are you are you fueling the fire? Are you giving them the attention they don't deserve? We're getting well, pressing I mean, now. On, We've got some serious. On, we don't know anything about healthcare, so we couldn't ask you any pressing questions then. Okay. But really holding your feet to the fire now. Well, but these people have far often have far bigger Twitter profiles uh, than I have. If not individually, then certainly collectively, because they all band together. That's that's what all these commies do. That uh, you get into a Twitter fight with one of them, and suddenly you have ten million of them in your notifications, which uh, is just not the way it works on our side. So the, the people who follow me, who are ideologically close to me, people like Ben, uh, they're, they're just not like that. We're not the type of, uh, we don't do pylons and we don't yeah. see Twitter as a team sport where if, if somebody has a someone I, who I broadly agree with is in a Twitter fight, I don't feel the need to immediately jump in and say, I'm on this team, I'm on your side. That's just not the way uh, liberal Twitter, uh, neoliberal Twitter such as it is, works. It's more of an, an individual sport and uh, it's uh, it's the commies who always come in massive hordes. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but so, so so so. But knowing that, why would you pollute your experience of the, the, this social the, the platform um, by by inviting those people in to your into your world? Like, I, I know, don't I'm, get it. I know. I'm I'm I'm, I'm just uh, saying that to make clear that I don't go for easy targets. Uh, it's it's uh, if somebody has, let's say, some some niche opinion that is that is clearly underrepresented uh on that on that medium I, I wouldn't go for those some someone who just has random uh, eccentric opinions I, I i do go for people who on, on twitter are, f- are vastly better represented than than i am or that other people on my side would be um why do it first yeah there is an entertainment uh aspect of it if you have to uh, I'd say Twitter is uh, maybe the sort of thing that uh, you shouldn't do in a, in a half-assed way. You either go go in there all guns blazing, or if it's not for you, then, then don't do it, or just use it very passively to, to monitor um, as a way to, of, of keeping That's up. That's true, because Matt's had to, you've had to back off it, haven't you? You backed off it. Um, I've, I've used it in spurts, I would say, but I'm definitely the passive, the passive option. Yeah, I okay, don't, I don't tweet. I agree. There's, no, you there's some, something to be said for that. Uh, but but I'm, I'm definitely not a person. Off. But neither am I a person who would like would try to pander to other people's opinions either. I just rather would not. Kind of, I'm not I'm really not like comfortable in that form, I guess. So it is interesting talking to somebody like you is who is 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 comfortable just kind of. So I guess for me, it's like saying what you would say around friends in a p- very public forum um, and not kind of um, censoring yourself too much and just kind of say, being provocative and uh, and just for fun, which I would do with my friends um, in, in private. <laughs> um, so it is interesting when you're yeah. seeing, seeing people like yourself who, and you do a bit of this as well. Yeah, but you still have to do have the freedom, don't you? Because you, you I, will, yeah, I... You will, you're comfortable laying yourself out. Mostly. I do um, have a day job though. I did get, a, I have been, I did get a, a formal warning for something I said on Twitter. <laughs> so uh, there's some that's a difference. If I had a job where I didn't matter, I guess I would think differently. But yeah, I'm not quite, I don't have I'm sometimes, uh, I do think you have to be a bit yeah brave in the sense of be ready for lots of abuse if you're going to say this or that. Sometimes quite loose, but yeah, I'm still quite guarded, generally. I don't say whatever I like on there. That's for sure. What we're saying is you have a very entertaining Twitter profile and people should follow you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's the whole point. But I mean, and, uh, going back to your point, uh, why, why, why do you invite them in? I mean, the, the sort of people that I go after are, uh, at least in Britain, uh, they are the majority of Twitter. Twitter is a very left-wing medium. It's uh, well, That's why all the, the political trends, they're always about Corbyn, about Marxism. Uh, that's just what most of Twitter is. So therefore... You don't really have the option of uh, of ignoring it. It's not like some subculture where you can say, "Okay, I will pay attention to these people." Uh, that will be 
like living in the Vatican and say, I will just ignore Catholicism. Twitter also knows that you love to see those people as well, though, and will is is presenting that back to you personally um, because just you feeding do feeding it into this meat grinder. That, yeah, the, the, yeah. That's just that's why that is just what happens with Twitter. It's a bit addict, addictive. I've, the last, in fact, my last few days on Twitter yeah. have just been insane. I've just been like screw. I haven't actually been tweeting that much or commenting. I've just been constantly scrolling. It's a very addictive. Uh, addictive app if you really if it's one of those daily activities you have which christina is with you and is with me um don't always don't always tweet regularly but it is a daily activity throughout the day check think about saying something sometimes i will tweet something's it's it's a Hmm. if you're really dedicated to it if you and especially if you're involved in writing or if you think tank people working with think tanks as christine do it does become something like part of your role that you're performing is, it can really pull you in. Yeah, I use it on, on public transport as well, and uh, even at the gym between sets. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Two-minute break, that means, okay, what are the comics up to? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I think um, I think that we should call it a day there, but uh, Christian, thanks very much for speaking to us today. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. No, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it was nice to uh, meet you electronically. Uh, so I'll meet you in person at some point. When I've already been to London once in the last two years, which is crazy. And that's just how it's panned out. Cause it, well, not two years, but, you know, since March 2020 and the world turned upside down. Been like once. But, uh, yes, I'm sure I'll see you around one day. Yep, come to Westminster. Yeah. Down at Tufton Street, probably, where all, where all, where all of you were... All, all the free market think tanks live and some, I'll show you some qual- quality beers yeah and free cigarettes no doubt from your backers <laughs> yeah less, less so there's less on the sausage front going on but you can take me for some we, yeah can take me some good beer some good sausages and some free tobacco from your evil funders who does fund you by the way can, I, can you uh, oh yeah. <laughs> can you that man yeah, the, uh, oh yeah you weren't expecting that serious question were you wow it's like fucking David Frost <laughs> never heard that one before <laughs> thank you Christian <laughs> thank you Thanks. have a good night yeah cheers goodbye <laughs>